Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, this is Tim Williams. I'm your host for the Grimshaw Cities Podcast Series. My really excellent guest today is Professor Richard Hugh of Canberra University in Australia, who is the expert's expert on Asian cities, on smart design, and he's written a recent book on the reinvention of the Chinese city. We're very keen in this series to explore beyond the usual suspects, Australia, Europe, and America, in terms of cities, and to get a real fix on what will be the most important growth area for cities of the future, which is Asia. Uh, Richard's your man, and this is a really informative conversation. Enjoy it. Uh, Richard, who, um, very, you're very welcome to this Grimshaw Cities podcast. Um, I'm delighted to speak to you. Uh, and uh, you've got great two great um, sort of books that you've been involved with over the last two years, I think, actually. And I'm very fascinated by both of them. And I think people will be very interested in, in the conversation we're about to have, because I think it's going to be interesting on a, a subject we don't talk enough about when we think about cities, which is Asian cities. Uh, a lot of the literature, academic work, inevitably has been about, you know, some of the major American and European cities, but we tend to generalize from their experience into other people's cities. And I think, uh, you know, and I think that's it's interesting. It's not just about for me the Asian cities as the alternative. There's African cities coming too, and I think uh, I've noticed that some of the fastest growth patterns globally are in African cities. So I think that's an interesting next topic I must I must talk about. But let's 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 begin the conversation about saying a bit about the work that you've been doing. Because you the other uh book that you've I think you've you've written one book which is about smart design and you've edited another about the the, the Rutledge handbook of Asian cities and we'll talk about both. But let's start with your own work. You you've been doing a lot of work about smart design and and I've always been very interested uh, I'm very involved in the smart city discussion. Um, so let, let's ask you, what do you mean by smart design and what was the book about? Uh, thank you, Tim. And uh, and uh, smart design uh, is, is intentionally uh, provocative. And uh, to great extent, it has been uh, inspired by the uh, our experience in, in uh, many experiences and in, in the COVID-19. And many, many of the uh, imaginings and the trends have been there or had been there before COVID-19. Right. But COVID-19, you know, played a sort of role that enabled and accelerated many trends. And uh, smart design is about, as I said, it's about imagining about the, the future and uh, built upon many, you know, evolving trends facilitated in the recent uh, accelerated in the in the recent years, and let's let me put it in this way. And our understanding of modern planning and the design, and in many aspects of architecture, are built in, upon you know our industrial society and land use, space use, zoning, and uh, the separation of residential and working and commercial, etc. 
And but now our society and our way of production and the consumption of space is moving into an age of post-industrialization, and many many aspects of the industrial divisions, the divisions of space use, and the division of land use, and our conceptualization, uh, conceptualization and the classification, and that all based upon our industrial activities. That divisions are, are increasingly blurred, and a good example is that you know the the traditional spatial division between work and life and living they tend to be blurred thanks to the ubiquitous access to tech to technology to the information technology. So we can work anywhere, anytime. So that raises a question, and our our conventional our our traditional. You know, approach to planning and the design, are they still valid, or are they going? Are they continuing to be valid in the future? So, in smart design, and uh, I raise more questions than answering questions, and it aims to trigger some debates and the thinking, and it aims to you know, kind of like uh, generate some 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 thinking and and novel practices for the future generation of city makers and city shapers. So I think this is really important. The uh, and I and I I forgive you for not having the answers to some of the most difficult questions that are, that are really posed to us as as urbanists. But I do commend you for raising the questions. And I think also you raise it in the right context, which is that some of the trends which are destabilizing. I think they're quite destabilizing, were either happening slowly before COVID or looked as though they were about to happen at some point. You know, uh, so for example, the online retail was, you know, a, a, a trend before COVID, but it was hugely accelerated by COVID. Um, it was always uh, the, the capacity, the potential of digital to enable us to work at home more, especially if you're a knowledge worker, but that hadn't been happening as much as people had expected. And then it got dramatically accelerated. But I do I do think I, I want to talk about this because I think that too many city planners and economists, uh, and in fact, I think there's two kind of contradictory things going on, uh, actually, at this amazing moment of transformation in our understanding of what's, uh, and transformation of what's actually going on in cities. On the one hand, you've got people who think it's all changed forever and it's nothing will ever be the same again. On the other hand, you've got people saying, oh no, this is just a minor, a minor blip and it'll all, you know, it'll all return to normal. I, I am very unstable about these matters. I, I sometimes, I, I confuse myself because I, you know, philosophers are supposed to make a difference between what is happening and what ought to be happening. And I, I, I'm one of those people that's so, angry at some of the things that are happening i just wish they weren't happening because i quite like the cities uh, that we were building before there were problems with them but i love the the kind of uh, the 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 agglomeration what i think of physical agglomeration in cities that brought us which is all the resources uh, all the kind of institutions all the kind of uh, experiences of being at the heart of a city they suddenly start dissolving uh, a bit and so where do you sit in this you know uh, there's what is happening what ought to be happening so are you seeing is your view um i, I you know I've, i give an example from the sydney experience uh office rents dropped maybe 20 percent in in sydney 
uh, because of COVID, the COVID experience of home working and hybrid working. It didn't probably drop as much in some other cities. Um, we can talk about that. But where, where do you sit? Do you think we are? The, the the smart design need is because actually things have fundamentally changed and that the the kind of hybrid digital working really must change how we understand cities yeah. and, and what the future is about i i agree with all the observations of yours and uh, uh agglomeration still matters could even matter more and but agglomeration will work and function in new ways Let's recall in, in late 1990s and early, uh, you know, 21st, the, the couple of the, the dot-com bubble years and, you know, the, the digital technology. And people argued that cities would die. And the geography didn't matter anymore thanks to the digital technology. Let's recall what has happened to our cities, to our planet in the past, you know, 20, 25 years. Cities matter more. Okay, geography matters more. So cities will not die and agglomeration still matters, will continue to matter, but in new way. And by smart cities, by digital technology, I don't mean that agglomeration and it doesn't matter anymore, but they're taking more forms. Like, let's think of this way. We, 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 think, we think that, you know, th there are two processes here. Certain activities would be decentralized you know, and retail, and, uh, you know, you, you just mentioned e-commerce, and during the COVID-19, and e-commerce business and grew enormously. And, but the trend had been there before COVID-19, and COVID-19 simply, you know, accelerated. But at the same time, certain factors, certain sectors would continue to congregate, con continue to cluster, Let's use, you know, uh, Silicon Valley as a good example. You know, that innovation capacity and that innovation capacity that is continued to cluster. And Sil Silicon Valley matters more and more for the, for the global innovation. So CBDs would be there, of course. Certain factor, certain sectors would be, you know, relocated elsewhere, but other sectors would move in. So, so uh, temporarily, of course, and there was a kind of like shock and because uh, the vacancy rate could be very high. But if we look at back at the things five years later, three, even three years later, and the things would be different because certain, because we are social animal and a certain, uh, you know, sectors require people to, you know, to meet up together for, for, for productivity, and for activity and for consumption. So um, I'm, I'm optimistic about uh, the agglomeration. And I'm, my argument is that agglomeration and uh, will, will increase and rather than decrease. But the form of the, and the composition of the agglomeration would be different from, you know, uh, decades ago. So I'm, I'm because I'm, Desperate and uh, to to retain the virtues of agglomeration and the and the, the cities. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember what had happened to some of the cities by the 1980s, where they'd lost their economic function. Uh, you know, some of the cities in Britain, particularly, had actually been quite industrial, and then the industrial deindustrialization hollowed out the cities, um, and so you had 
you know, a lot of economic activity had become suburban, suburbanized and leaving these stranded assets of, of in city centers. And then a, a reinvention of them came along, partly retail, partly knowledge workers moving to the city to replace some of these economic functions. So you ended up with uh, a good example in, in Australia would be Melbourne. Melbourne by the 80s was had very few people living in the city city centre mm-hmm. um, and then got reinvented uh, as a kind of um, knowledge worker, retail, uh, food and beverage paradise. Uh, and, and as tens of thousands of people living in the in the city centre now before, and that happened all over the world, as far as I could tell, a kind of reinvention of the city. So I, I'm I'm sort of optimistic that they go through cycles of decline and growth and reinvention. I, I think that, but I'm I am a bit concerned that this strikes me as a bit more radical than we've than we've seen for some time, and that the the fact that people are going into their offices two or three times a week is profoundly changing the economics of of offices. So mm. I think that. I don't know what you think about this, but because this is this is partly a Western city discussion. I want to move on to some of this because we didn't see quite as much. We haven't seen, I think, you can tell me I'm wrong, by the way. We haven't seen quite as much home working, hybrid working in some of the uh, some of the Asian cities context. Where I, my impression, again, you must tell me I'm right or wrong, has been there that there's been higher occupancy. Uh, rates in some of these Asian cities and people went back to work. Not all the cities, but many of them, I understand. Now, you will tell me differently. So my point, though, is this, that I can see that there will be reinvention, but I'm not quite convinced that the economic driver that CBDs have been will be retained uh, in this decentralized model of economic activity. So let's go there first. What do you think about that, that they will reinvent, but they'll become more like cultural centers and maybe more people will live in them rather than these hives of high value knowledge work. What do you think? Uh, I, I like the, the, the term you used, reinvent or reinvention. And yeah. the CBDs have always been reinvented. And let uh, you just mentioned Melbourne is a good example. Sydney is a good example as well. Let's look at the activities and the, the space. Uh, spatial reinvention of places like Altima, Permont. And we could still tell the the industrial, you know, architectural legacies, and we could tell from the buildings, uh, facades, et cetera. But what, if we look at the activities and the workers and the users of these spaces, the different generation of workers, the different set of things there, and I think that's what the smart design is about. It's, it's about the future and it's about the adaptability and for the, uh, for, for the future activities, uh, thanks to technological uh, advancement, thanks to the uh, globalized knowledge economy. And in the current, I think the, our, our notion of centralization and decentralization, urban and suburban, they continue to be valid, but we need to visit them from, from a different angle. For example, I, I believe in market forces. And the market will tell, okay, what's the best use of those, you know, uh, commercial spaces? If 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 they, we do not have, you know, enough, you know, office workers to 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 use them. And for example, another good example is that we think that you know, IT industry will make many people, you know, unemployed, but it creates many many new jobs. And that space use is not going to be used by, you know, 
office workers. They could be converted, uh, adapted for other uses. And I was, you know, if we look at the Sydney CBD, and I believe the city of Sydney, and they conduct space use and employment survey once every five years. Yeah. And, uh, and from the late 70s until today. And if we look at this data, they, that kind of like transformation and invention have always been there. And the facts are different, you know, triggering factors, the transition from industrial activities to post-industrial activities, from the, you know, uh, labor-intensive sectors to knowledge-intensive sectors. I believe that trend is, is always there. It's always there. Actually, it's, it, we're talking about a kind of like a, a, a target that has been moving all the time. Hmm. The, 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 I mean, I don't disagree with that. The cities are always in flux. I, I don't disagree with that. I wonder about whether the, com the coming together of COVID and the automation of jobs, the robotization ahead of us, the AI ahead of us, really, that these might be inflection points. And people often forget about the, the Luddites, you know, who opposed the, the, the introduction of cotton machines you know, or machinery to take their jobs. They were right and they were wrong. You know, they, they, they were wrong to think that this just meant the death of jobs. But they were right in thinking that it meant the death of jobs for them uh, in those places. You know, so, so i.e., you know, we, we did see um, massive new jobs in industrialization, but they weren't in London and the southeast. They were in the north and the midlands of England, for example. So so there is a, you know, I'm I'm with you that, cities reinvent themselves, but but economies can physically move. And I think that's interesting. The other thing, you started it out, actually, we, we didn't pursue it, but it is relevant to this conversation, the, that we might see a reintroduction of industrial uses to city centres because it's clean now. Where you know the, the strong rezoning that we saw from the 1920s in, in many cities was really about the, the, um, the antisocial uh, and environmental environmentally damaging industries that couldn't be put next door to residential. Mm. Uh, but we might see some of these city offices become places where sort of modern, modern manufacturing or, or fourth industrial revolution stuff happens. What do you think about that? Is it, let's just do that as an aside. What's your, what's your view of that? I think that could be, that could be. And increasingly, you know, I think, you know, uh, they, I'd argue that it, the, the traditional division uh, between consumption and the production of space, of space uses. Uh, th there is a certain division there, but that division could be increasingly blurred. Yeah. And for example, what we are doing now, and I'm talking to you in my home office, but by space use, this is for living. But I'm working here most of the time. So, and if, if we, I, I like your imagining of, you know, what we, certain space in the CBDs in our city centers could be re-industrialized yeah. for new industry activities. That could yeah. be possible. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I do think the live-work thing has become, it is a profound, you know, it, it was potentially always there before COVID and has obviously been accelerated by it. And you can see it, by the way, play into residential prices uh, because um, one thing that was very clear to me is that before COVID, there had been a convergence coming between the price of a of a of an apartment and the price of a house. You know, depending on location, and you would you would you would see you would see a kind of 
coming together, people, the, the the yield difference between them was not as big as it had been, because. Yeah. Yeah. But COVID put a premium on space, so we saw more standalone homes built in Sydney than we'd seen for some time. Uh, the market responded instantly. Uh, in fact, by the way, just for those people who don't know, because it's like a wild fact, but housing delivery went up in Australia during COVID, uh, despite the fact there was no in-migration at all. And that's mm-hmm. a separate conversation because I'm a housing nerd. But that, that just proves to me how distorted our, our housing market actually is. But my most important point here is that space became a real premium. So I think going forward, we might still see apartments built in large numbers, but they'll be bigger than they were before because that whole home working thing requires a certain um, space. And if, very interestingly, I think it plays into office price, office rents. I, I remember t- mentioning to you when we talked first on, on the phone about this that I think that the reason why office rents dropped so much more in Sydney than in many other places is because we don't have a high-density apartment-based um, society in, in Australian cities on the whole, whereas other places where you couldn't do much homeworking at home pushed people back to the office a lot more, especially if they had good mass transit. Now this is a good segue to are do Australia do um Asian cities are they different? And what do we mean by an Asian city anyway? So this brings me to your your latest work, which is your you've edited the handbook on Asian cities. Can you say a bit about that, Richard? Uh, yes, of course. And I I, I I like your 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 observation and relating the density to the way and people uh, choose to work from home and and uh, in office, and that could be a, di- a, a different factors and between the the uh, city, uh, cities in the new world like Australia, not even North America and the Asian cities. Okay, let's move to the book of Rodledge Handbook of Asian Cities. Uh, I have to admit that this was a very bold and uh, and ambitious, if not overbold, on over ambitious uh, exercise. And this is a dialogue. This is a dialogue, and and between this is a platform for dialogue, and between uh, Asian cities, and uh, we include uh, one Asian city from each region and each Asian country under the same uh, under under the same platform or dialogue. So. Uh, it's hard or nearly impossible to define what is Asian city, but there are several factors, several attributes, and shared by the Asian cities. And uh, and I think one important attribute, or probably the most prominent, uh, and uh, uh, personally, I'm the proudest about it, is that we bring those traditionally overlooked cities and into the same dialogue with cities like London, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Tokyo. And for example, we bring cities like Thimphu, Delhi, and, uh, and uh, uh, Kathmandu, Karachi, and Kabul, even Pyongyang. And uh, so it, it, I think the, the dialogue itself is, is very interesting. And Asian cities and differ from, uh, from cities and, uh, you know, in, in the West, in North America, in Australia, in Europe. Uh, not just in the 
in terms of urban form density, of course, density and it's 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 a it's it's a, a attribute for many uh, Asian cities. When we think about Hong Kong, when we think about Tokyo, and even and Shanghai and uh, and Singapore, and I think for Asian cities, and we try to understand Asian cities from inside out rather than outside in. We try to find out what is the indigenous urbanism. Mm that differentiate Asian cities from non-Asian cities, apart from, you know, uh, geographically they're based in Asia, but the culturally and historically. And I think there is one common theme that could link Asian cities is that for Asian cities or for Asian countries, urbanization is more than urbanization. Urbanization is about modernization. And uh, urbanization is about uh, not just about city making, Urban, urban urbanization is about nation building. Yeah. So I think if we look at the history and uh, you know, if from from the post-war decades in from nineteen fifties, sixties, seventies, the rise of Japan and the rise of Asian four Asian little tigers and all uh, for Asian little uh, dragons, whatever they are called, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan and South Korea. And from 1980s and the 90s until today, China, but now then we see the Vietnam. So all the modernizations and the economic rises of those Asian societies are closely linked with the urbanizations. So we, if we take that perspective to look at the Asian urbanization, that presents a different scenario from what we have observed or experienced and uh, uh, elsewhere and in the developed world. So I think that's the major uh, argument or, or, or perspective in this attitude book. You are listening to the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City series. It's interesting. The um, I should say, by the way, uh, that you are the convener of the Asian Cities Network, aren't you? As well as uh, somebody who helped uh, edit the, uh, a book about it, you actually are trying to bring people together to have the the, the, the conversations. I, I I come to this. I agree with all, all all that. I come to this from a recent experience of being in Hanoi, <laughs> which is the most extraordinary city I have ever been in. But it but it actually plays to some things that you've said. One is around. I felt it to be um, whatever the extraordinary anarchy, uh, and it was an extraordinary anarchy on on the streets. You know, the, the, this is a city with uh, like historically quite narrow streets uh, that everybody's driving a motorbike uh, on. You know, and nobody's paying any attention to rules on the roads whatsoever. Pedestrians have no meaning uh, in this context whatsoever, and I couldn't bring myself to dislike it. You see, no, normally I just go crazy when I think of Western cities that don't pay respect to pedestrians and all that stuff. But I, I just felt that, that what I was witnessing was actually something like the animal spirits of a of a of a of a people expressing them, themselves, you know. And actually, their individualism was expressed through their motorbike. You know, it was kind of a, it was almost their two fingers as to to like state authority was well I'm on my bike you know and if you, you can't stop me at a junction and get real you know and the the other thing is of course the the past dependency issue which is that uh, but we forget you know part of the reason why Sydney is like it is is because actually the inner core of Sydney does look like an, a former you know um European uh, city and it's high density and it's got 
kind of you know a structure and it you know it it it, it, it because it was built before the 1940s and before the car you know mm-hmm. so so the bit of sydney that isn't that wasn't built before the car that was built after the car is profoundly different to the you know and and so that there's a path dependency issue and when your city developed as well it seems to me and what was the two things one is the mode of transport that underpins your city development the chronology of, of that and then the second thing is about land ownership and uh you know housing tenure and uh you know because the other thing about you know western societies after the 1950s and 60s is home ownership and and the the desire for standalone homes and the fact that you will go a long way out of the city in order to satisfy that 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 need that desire so that all these things come together come together i'd also like the fact um and you don't have to agree with this but i think it's implicit in what you say is that i once uh i once got uh, somebody from yang gale's office to give a talk uh, in wales you know and they, they you know scandinavian urban design uh you know and the paradox of young gale who i revere you know and and you know, is that he was exporting um scandinavian design to places that really uh you know is probably not that not that appropriate for although i i like all that thinking my point is this though that the young gale guy basically said there was a link between the urban design principles of people like young gale and social democratic politics you know i.e social democratic societies that and i think that's true and so you go to a, a hanoi and and there's a link between where they've reached uh, as a society and this kind of anarchy that i saw on the streets which is actually almost a, an expression of human freedom you know what i mean it was kind of a so so i so i'm kind of interested in uh in the interplay between like you know the when the city develops the culture of of the society around it, and your point about national a stage of national modernization, I think that's absolutely right. And these are bigger forces than just merely urban design and and uh, you know even planning, as it were. Yeah, I think that that they're all very good notions, and you know, public space or space use is never spatial. It's it's a it's a political, economical culture and the historical and definitely you're right and uh, you raised a young girl and uh, you know actually many many of the observate uh, inspirations from the so-called new urbanism and new new urbanism despite the 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 term new and actually it's it's old it's 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 traditional and the borrow ideas from you're right from pre-industrial cities and especially from those european cities yeah yeah and I uh, and I don't. Um, I think these are all really interlocking and fascinating things. But it does mean sometimes it's quite difficult to generalize from, you know, from one experience to another. You know, and, and people are forever wanting to transplant, you know, ideas into into territory that that they might not work in. I think you know. And uh, I mean, I, and a good example. I, I've just um, been doing some work in in a part of the Middle East, and uh, you know the. The climate is different. The the cultural expectations are different. The, the use of public space is either it, it's it's not that it's not used in the same way. It's not used by the same kind of mix of community. There's a gender gendered space, you know. So I, I feel that we we there's a tendency, and not just I think from um, you know to apply Western models eastwards, but we, we all generalize 
uh, that you know, and we all our notion of the great city and the great neighborhood. We we try to export. You know, it's my it's my weird complaint about the Anne Gale thing, which otherwise I love. Is that you know, it's like transplanting any cultural you know uh, activity. It might not it might not land well. You know, so uh, and we might be making assumptions about what people want. You know, that that actually doesn't fit. I mean. You know, I, I was I was quite challenged by the Hanau experience because uh, it really is co completely different kind of um, functioning of a city to what I thought was the good city. But I still I find myself liking it, you know, and uh, um, anyway, so I'm not an expert on any Asian city whatsoever. This is one or two. Singapore interests me because it strikes me as a kind of compromise or a, what's the word, a kind of an attempt to bring a few traditions together. Um, and I don't know if Singapore stands out. If, if there is a chapter in your in the book on on Singapore, yes, yes, there is a, a chapter on Singapore. Singapore is, is both east and west cosmopolitan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, observations on planning for Asian cities. The, the thing we haven't talked about is governance. Um, you know that I, you know, I when I was I've written a bit about smart cities in the sense of. Um, data-driven and tech technologically enabled, you know, cities and all this kind of stuff. And I think people often miss that smart cities require smart governance. You know, the the uh, that the, that there's no point, or there's very little point in you know measuring stuff if it's not going to feed back into the way that you run your run your city. You know, and and actually, very few cities at the moment are really smart in that deep in that deep sense. You know, but Singapore's quite smart in that deeper sense yeah uh, singapore uh, had a, a a smart nation initiative yeah yeah singapore is leading very leading in in uh in promoting the but smart it's partly because it's a city state isn't it it's partly that it's, Correct. it can do that and it, it, can actually, do that, yeah. it actually finds stuff out from the it measures performance and it feeds that into the systems that it's got which i find very Im impressive so um are we are we optimistic about the future of the city let's let's do this you, you yeah, what's your take on that? Are you? Uh, we're in a we're in a period of transition. We agree that. Um, do you think there are any cities that you've looked at where you think oh, I'm quite confident that they're they're going in a they've recovered from this COVID thing? They're going in a in a very firm direction, or is it too early to judge? Uh, it's probably too early to judge, but there are some good signs. You know, you know the the constant is uh, change is the only constant, and things keep changing. And we don't know what's the next disruption and the next change. And uh, uh, human beings, as a uh, you know, we are recovering from from this shock, and we learn things. And sometimes, even though we learn things very slowly, but uh, you know, we are, we are learning. And uh, I think uh, in Asia, in some East Asian society, at least in the early stage of the COVID nineteen, and they performed and uh, reasonably better. Than than society as elsewhere because they had a historical experience experience of SARS yes. in two thousand three, and then we realized okay the whole world uh, you know was learning very quickly North America Europe UK and Australia and Australia New New Zealand did very well and you know and other societies were learning from each other and very quickly and good practice uh, and uh, disseminated and diffused elsewhere. And uh, I think uh, uh, we should be uh, we should be optimistic about the future. 
Because if we took a longer history of human civilization of thousands of years or even longer, we're learning, and uh, as 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 a group. But I do I do like the point they just mentioned. I'd like to to re-highlight it a little bit. You know, uh, we need to plan things and uh, borrow some best practice from elsewhere. But we cannot just transplant that. I didn't think that point was very good, and uh, and you had that kind of like global experience, and you could make that observation. Yeah. But that observation is truly, truly important because, uh, especially from the Asian perspective, because we witnessed so many failures, failures in Asian cities because you know they hired international experts, they just transplanted things from from what worked in America or Europe. And to the local context, a good example is uh, was in my was in the book, the handbook of Asian cities, and that was a case study uh, about Ulaanbaatar, the capital city of Mongolia. Yeah. And they had the World Bank experts to make a plan for them without good consultation with local residents, and they proposed a plan of the high density residential, you know, uh, for, for the local residents. It was not in their culture. It was not in their tradition. Yeah. That project didn't work well because the many of the residents they like the kind of living environments like girls, you know, on the grasslands. So that that was a good example. And this, I'd like to you know to bring back that point a little bit to highlight it. I, I think that's very important. Uh, that and there is a very interesting. It off this discussion about implanting ideas often comes back to the density discussion, right? So that the almost the big idea is that density is good. Um, there's a kind of um, urbanist uh, dis, dis, disdain, an urbanist dislike of suburbia, um, and I, and I kind of share it to to some degree. I, I'm. I regard myself as terribly contradictory on the on these matters. I grew up in a, a lower density housing place in a you know in a mining town in 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 Wales originally that was quite low density uh, public housing but quite low density and and I could see instinctively that it just couldn't provide the amenity and the you know the kind of experiences and the excitement that I wanted and I, I knew it could only come from a city. On the other hand, it was close to the country. It was close to uh, public space. Uh, actually, at the time it was built, it was walkable to jobs, um, you know, and also it expressed the kind of uh, desire that people had not just to be part of a dense community, but to actually have some space for themselves away from other people. You know, it was kind of a, that it played to other things that people quite like, which is, you know, sometimes not to be surrounded by loads and loads of people. And here's a here's an interesting thought also about some of the health implications of all this stuff. So one of the things that is, I think, a pattern from COVID is that some of the mega cities lost population. And they lot they and this is not an, a new pattern that uh, uh, in fact interestingly Andres Duaney, the founder of the Congress for New Urbanism, he he made a very important point in, during the middle of COVID that that we've been here before in one sense, which is that when the Spanish flu happened in 1918, 1919, guess what happened? People with choice left Chicago and left New York 
and they went to California and they went to Florida, where they proceeded to develop the Californian bungalow, which then came to Australia as a, as a, as a, as a model. And the virtue of it was it was a warmer climate with less problems for respiratory diseases and mm-hmm. was less likely to convey the respiratory disease on the one hand, but also people deliberately left high-density places that they thought might be conveyor belts of disease. And they they actively sought places that were lower density and had better climate. So Australian population grew in the 1920s partly because of this. And I suspect, by the way, that Australia will become an even more attractive destination after this experience. What do you think about all that kind of stuff? I, I agree. Actually, data showed that in, uh, I think, in uh, 2021, at least in 2021, the property prices in regional centers in Australia yeah. increased, you know, yeah. and yeah. Uh, significantly, and largely thanks to the flea and, you know, uh, yeah. of people from this. Uh, uh, naturally, you know, you know, we 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 make we make rational decision and based uh, based our, our our assumption in that context. So you, you, you're right, and the people try to move to to the uh, to regional centers and uh, and to seek a, a different lifestyle and uh, in in large triggered by the COVID nineteen. Uh, and uh, and other considerations, and you just don't know. Maybe you know five years later and ten years later, and it could be a re- reverse trend. No, no. <laughs> I mean, they discover that it's quite boring and, and all. Like yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, the, the one thing I missed in that though is quite. This is something I do want to ask you about. Um, I was in Paris recently, and I again you see the virtue of, and, I, and it's a form of density I do think is really successful, of the four or five story perimeter block, you know, and people are living above really active, you know, uh, shops and all the cafes, bars, restaurants, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it it provides a density that creates amenity and public transport. And you just think that's perfect. But the bit that's missed is a lot of this is because people are not owning these places, they're renting these places, right? So, so I think that people miss when they talk about how transplanting the density thing is that you might actually have to transplant the rental thing uh as well that there's a link coming back to my earlier point there's a there's kind of cultural um a cultural norm in germany and in france uh more than in england or the australia or the anglosphere countries that you won't own that you will rent and so so density and rental go together quite quite naturally but if you try to do ownership and density that's not as easy it seems to me to sell um, as as an idea, uh, or rather, to put it differently, um, that, that 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 some of the places we love because of their density, it actually is partly because they're rental. Um, uh, anyway, what do you think about all that kind of that mix of ownership and density in in the discussion? And the, the nexus between uh, rental and density, and uh, I, I like the point. Even uh, I didn't think of it in that way, like myself. But I need to think further in the future. Yeah, yeah. But I agree with you that because compared with the European cities like Paris, and uh, I mean European continent cities, and in Australia, we don't have that kind of like you know medium density, yeah, yeah. You know, a five or four, you know. But yeah. they, they, we're starting to have more. And yeah. uh, but I, personally, I I hope there will be more. You know, agree, I agree uh, with yeah. that kind of a medium density where we have have all the amenities, cafe, and you know the, the shops. You know, to make the a lively community. 
and um, I, I'm, we may not have to, you know, to have the the same kind of like high density as we as as we see in Singapore or Hong Kong or in Shanghai. No, I agree. I, this is quite an important point, I think, because there has been not just an assumption, but the practice of density in Australia has been to go from the standalone home to the thirty-story tower. Um, mm. If you go to Melbourne, there's you know all sorts of like thirty-story towers, almost it's the residential towers. That's not the, the leap uh, that you need to do. And most people, a lot of people, don't want to do that leap, but they, they would be delighted to do the Paris, you know, four or five story thing. I, I got a funny story about this because when I first came to Australia, I showed an image of a beautiful street in Barcelona and I was there recently again. And again, it's four to five story perimeter block, you know, beautiful thing. And somebody says to me, yeah, you see, that's mar- that is marvellous thing, but we can't replicate that in an Australian city. And I said, why? And they said, well, because the planning regulations are obsessed with overshadowing. Uh, and that, uh, and I just said that Barcelona's got plenty of sunshine, you know. So, so we do have to think. We have to adapt uh, if we want that four or five story thing. We have to understand the conditions in which it can be successful, you know, in Australia, and change a lot of our regulatory and planning assumptions to uh, enable it. Um, so again, you know, th- that's an interesting one where you know we 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 could trans. That is a transplantable idea. But but we but not in current conditions. We 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 have to change other things to make that that work. I think this is part of a, a broader conversation, Richard. About there are lessons internationally, but mm-hmm. but but simple transplantation is not is not is not possible. It's uh, adaptation has to be the uh, the approach. Uh, planet diffusion happens. Planet right. diffusion happens. But uh, in many cases, and planning good practices is diffusing more slowly than we expect. Like human, you know, take of new stuff, technology, you know, like yeah. when car first arrives and we were used to horsepower, you know, that kind of thing. It took a while. And we could tell that, you know, in Australia and uh, we, we, we see more and more economic that kind of like a medium in a density and that's a good point because we we have two extremes you know yeah. and low density very high density and we, yeah. we we don't have that kind of like kind of like a middle range we don't have to build this kind of like a middle range density in cities they could yeah. be in in a suburban center make the suburban center a, a lively community by itself that could be a good idea yeah and i think that's right i think i think that is right i think that if if we assume uh, that there is going to be a more a transformation of the CBDs and they're going to become more mixed use, which I think is 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 in play, you know, so there'll be more people living in them, and there'll be more mix of economic and activity than we've seen. And because for those people who don't know internationally, one of the weird things about Australian town centres, not so much the CBDs, but Australian town centres outside the CBDs, is they're actually quite mono in that they're very retail uh, oriented. Nobody lives in them. And they are they, they don't have many office jobs and they, they tend to have just like you know, shopping mall jobs or re- retail jobs. So there is a real opportunity, not just for the CBD to reinvent itself, but for shopping malls and high streets in Australian town centres to be reinvented as much more mixed use. And then uh, your point, I think, is good. It raises the question about whether we can sort of retrofit some of these town centres. You know, there is like just to put it again in context, Australia, uh, Sydney is a city of five million. And there, there are thirty-eight to forty historic town centres actually in, in in Sydney that are probably prime now 
for if there is more decentralized working for for them to be reinvented and we're seeing everywhere um by the way richard i'm sure you know this the kind of reinvention of the shopping mall as more mixed use as retail goes down people are beginning yeah. to knock them down or adapt them and all and so i think there's some really interesting real estate uh implications of these trends that we're talking about that will lead to sort of reinventions um I was going to ask you a couple of questions in conclusion about all this. And I'm fascinated. By the way, uh, we'll give links to people about the, the two books that you've uh, been involved in. This is a critical discussion, which I'd like to have again about the the, the, the ways in which uh, our understanding of, of global cities and stuff needs to be informed by global city, you know, learnings, you know, the, 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 you know and they're not e but easily transplanting one. It's not the, the latest version of cultural imperialism but in reverse, you know, we're not just saying that whatever happens in Hong Kong or Singapore should be imported. But that discussion of the post-COVID city and what people have been doing is really a, an important international conversation to have. So let's let's go to that now. So so um, so in a couple of cities that you might think about, so ones that you know best. Uh, I mean, we we didn't dwell on this a bit. So my impression was, despite apart from China, where they took a very uh, hard line, obviously, on zero COVID and all that kind of stuff. There, there were lots of Asian cities, I think, where people went back to work quite, quite quickly, and they they didn't quite empty in the way that some of the Western cities did. Is that is that right? Is that is that correct? It, it, it is right. I, I think Singapore is, is 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 a good case, but China is is totally reopened, yeah, back to normal. And during the during the Lunar New Year, and I heard from from friends in China that the business was busier than pre COVID nineteen, and uh, there was so called revenge consumption. <laughs> interesting <laughs> phrase. I mean, that is an interesting phrase. Just to pause on that because I do want to nail this. The uh, so in in Sydney, uh, people at any one day, it's still only about forty to fifty percent of people are back in their office. But there's been something that I've seen internationally, and I don't know if you see it in Asian cities at all, of people coming in for entertainment a lot more. Um, so that the cities are becoming like party cities where, you know, I, I may work at home, but I'm so bored at sitting on my backside for three days at home. I'm going to go into the city mm -hmm. for cultural consumption purposes. Are you seeing that? Of course, I like the concept of cultural consumption. Cities yeah. are more than places of, you know, production. Again, th th this is related to our uh, notion in the very beginning. So modern cities, as we know, are legacies of industrial revolution. But look, let's look at the ancient cities, that places for social animals, for human beings to get together, to see each other, to share emotion, and to exchange, you know, whatever human activities. So what do we have observed? All those kind of like dynamic Asian cities in our minds, maybe, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, Tokyo, or Shanghai, they are dynamic, not because people go to office to work there, but people go there to for consumption activities, retail, karaoke, and, you know, food, cafe, or some people feel like, you know, doing nothing. I just don't want to walk along the street, window shopping, doing nothing, have a coffee. And that's it. Well, so, so uh, this, yeah. Kind, yeah, sorry. There is kind of like, you know, we must create the kind of like amenities and spaces and activities that are magnets that attract people there. 
uh, doing nothing or have nothing in mind. I just feel like visiting the city center today. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, uh, I, it's a good place to to end on. Although I, I must avoid my my usual rant about the, this. The, I, I I always get told off when I get a bit uh, annoyed about this. Well, I'm going to talk about the, the the cultural problem with homeworking is the is that it it's a for me for me is that it's a form of assertion of narcissism in a way. I mean, what do I mean? I I think cities are, exist for the purpose of sociability. They, they they only exist because they are the most effective way of bringing large numbers of people together to share, to consume, to produce, to marry, to intermingle. They, this is their purpose. They, they, this, is, this is for fun. This is what they were created for. So we need to find ways to convince people, not necessarily that they have to go back into the city centres to work all the time, but that, that, that the sociability function the reassertion of of community and sociability is is what cities were existed for and and we should still value them for and i'm i'm rather hoping in that in that next phase where we're trying to in a sense restore revive the sociability function of our cities however whatever form it takes cultural economic whatever that we can have this conversation internationally about what what cities in Asia, Africa, and Europe and America are doing around that core objective of restoring sociability. And in that discussion, I think people like you, Richard, will be very important. So thank you very much for your time today. It's been great. You have been listening to the third series of the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in the series or listen to the previous series at your favourite podcast provider.